Uh, I was born in a small town called Masjid Suleiman in southern Iran. I born in Syria. I was born in Hamburg, Germany. I was born in Kong. I was born in Tanzania in a refugee camp. I was born in Singapore. Guatemala City. I'm from Ireland. I was born in Thailand refugee. I was born in Mumbai. Mm-hmm. I was born in Vientiane. I was born in England. I was born in Costa Rica. Welcome to Many Roads to Here bringing the voices of immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers to a national conversation about migration and identity. I'm your host, Caitlin Dwyer. Janice Okamoto was born only a month before the Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor in 1941. And because of her Japanese heritage, she was pegged as an enemy of her home country, the United States, just after her birth. Emily Kerr has her story. Janice's grandparents came to the United States as young adults because of the financial opportunity that it would offer them. They made Oregon their home and became American citizens. Janice's parents were born in Oregon. They met at their Buddhist church, got married, and set up a dry cleaning business in Japantown. They had a son, and in 1941, baby Janice was born. But when Imperial Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, Japanese Americans were pegged as enemies and possible spies. Curfews were set exclusively for Japanese Americans. Not long after, Franklin Roosevelt signed an order for the forced relocation of over 112,000 Japanese Americans into incarceration camps. They were only given 48 hours notice before they lost their homes and businesses and were allowed to bring only what they could carry. Oh, a lot of, I I know a lot of things were left behind. I, I remember my mom telling me that you know, her, she had a doll collection. You know, they have a, 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 she had a lot of beautiful doll collections, and I think those things were left behind. But then a lot of things, they, they because of the war, they, they, they burned a lot of things because they were afraid that they would be framed uh, being, uh, you know, an uh, enemy. My mother and dad, they were shocked because of Japan bombing Pearl Harbor, and then they, they, could, they, they could understand why the American people would consider them enemy because of the, the way we look. I think they got all kinds, you know, Japs don't return, go away, you know, we don't want you back here or anything. Janice's family was among the almost 3,700 Japanese Americans to be incarcerated at the Portland Expo Center. Up until that point, the center had been used to house horses, cows, pigs, and other animals. Thin plywood walls were put up to create rooms that constantly smelled of animal dung. Living conditions in the expo center were not much different from those of the animals that lived there before them. Janice, only a few months old at this point, and her family stayed at the expo center for six months before being put on a train and sent to an unknown location. Well, all I, all, yeah, all I remember is the uh, expo center, well, the, uh, it was, uh, we lived, I believe they said it was a horse stall. And we lived in this horse stall for about six months. And it was all guarded. It was still guarded with, with uh, the wire fence and, and the, the soldiers with their rifles. Uh, they, even though it was uh, still, uh, I guess we were still considered you know, enemy because of our you know, features. And all I can remember is that 
and we went, got on the train, and I remember they said the, the, the blinds had to be down, you know, we couldn't look out, and I, I think it was like a two or three day trip. Nobody knew, nobody knew where they were going. Along with 14,000 other people, Janice's family ended up at Minidoka, a camp in the midst of a desert in Idaho. They were surrounded by nothing but rocks, sand, and sagebrush, and the barracks were made out of tar paper, which did little to protect against the extreme cold or heat. Each family was given one room to live in, and nobody had any idea how long they would be there for. I think uh, the women or self-conscious, they didn't like the open showers, they didn't like the open latrine, and so they would go and bring blankets or something to hide when they had to take care of their, you know, take a shower or, or take care of their business. And then they didn't like the lines. All you had to, li it was always lines, lines to, to go, you know, for the food, you know, to have your meals. And of course, lines, and lines to do your laundry, lawn, it was lines for everything. And then, of course, the weather was either real cold or really hot or really, if it's raining, it was all muddy, so they had to put boards to walk to different places. This is one story. One person I heard that went to take a shower, by the time he got back to his barrack, his hair was all ice, was all ice, so I hear stories like that. They said I was a sickly child. <laughs> I don't know if it's because of the dust storm or whatever, but uh, anyway, uh, it was... Not a pleasant place is what I know. The thing is, the Japanese people, you know, they're, uh, they call it shikatanai, you know, meaning it can't be helped. Wherever they're going, they have to go there. Uh, you know, this is the situation, it can't be helped, we'll just have to endure it. And so that's uh, their attitude. About a thousand of those who had been incarcerated at Minidoka ended up joining the army to fight for the U.S. during World War II. There were so many Japanese Americans fighting that they created a few units entirely of people of Japanese ancestry. One of those units even liberated a satellite concentration camp in Germany, while their own families were stuck in concentration camps back in America. The families of those who died fighting in the war could not even come to their funerals as they were still in internment. They did that because they wanted the American people to say that we are Americans, and I think my family felt the same way, that we are American. And yes, we are a Japanese-American, but we are Americans. We have nothing to do with Japan. We don't even know about Japan. We don't even, we maybe have relatives in Japan, but uh, they, they just felt patriotic to America. And that's why I know there were some no-no boys because they felt like, why am I going to fight for America when my parents and my family are in, in turn. But I think they wanted to prove uh, that they are Americans. And I think some of, I think there was people in camp, uh, the families thought, why are you fight? Why are you gonna fight? You know, they've got us in camp, you know, but they felt, no, I'm an American and I want to prove to them that we are American and, and we want to uh, show them our loyalty to the, to the country.
Janice's dad had always loved music. Though he had not been able to bring any of his instruments with him besides his harmonica, he used music to cope with life in Minidoka. He also used music to bring a sense of community and joy for those within the camp as well. My dad was very musical, and uh, I, when we went to Minidoka, uh, my uncle and my dad, they knew other people that had in, played instruments, so they formed a band called the Norakua Band. My dad played the piano, and they had the saxophones and the trumpets, so somehow they had them in camp, or they ordered them through Sears Roebucks or Montgomery Wards or something, because they did have a band, and they even had the, the stand, you know, with their name on, on it. And so the mess hall would be, you know, the tables would be pushed back, and they would sing uh, American songs, popular American songs, and the Japanese Inca songs. And, and then people would, the young people would dance and, and sing along, I think, with them. And so that's what a uh, lot of the young people enjoyed about camp. And it was very popular, very popular. And it made uh, living there a little bit better because it was not very pleasant living, you know, in, the, in those barracks. It brought comfort and happiness to the young people when they formed the band and they were able to have the, the dances on Saturday night. They had it every Saturday night. It didn't start right away, but then they started getting together and saying, we should do something. We've got to make it a little nicer. And, and that's when they started doing Japanese gardens. They started growing their own vegetables. I know my mom says she had a lot of, uh, she got food poisoning and she got diarrhea for eating their kind of food there. But so then they started farming and growing vegetables. And I think they, they did flower arrangement, and I think uh, uh, some people were teaching the koto. I know there was odori lessons, dancing lessons, and, and of course sports. The boys had sports. later, in 1945, Janice and her family were finally released from Minidoka and the camp shut down. They were allowed to go back home, even though they, like most people, did not have a home or belongings to return to. And when they got back to Portland, discrimination against people of Japanese heritage made life difficult. They gave us $25 and uh, uh, I guess a train ticket or a bus ticket to go back and like my parents ended up coming back to Portland. Some of the other families I know ended up going to the East Coast. You know, my mother's best friend's family, they went to Chicago. When we came back from Minidoka, he couldn't afford to buy the business back again. So uh, he was a, I know he washed, was a dishwasher at uh, Henry Thiele's. And I think my mother worked at the Benson Hotel, like a, a a maid or something, you know, they made the beds. Uh, I know that it was hard after the war, they couldn't find a job. That's why they were doing a dishwasher or uh, being a maid until they were able to find a decent job. When we came back, they didn't want us to live any place. And then we got housing at Vanport. So a lot of people heard that they, they accepted us there and it was uh, reasonable housing and a reasonable price to pay to rent there. Maybe about 300 of us uh, Japanese families ended up 
uh, going to Vamport. Vamport was a temporary housing project tucked in between two rivers. Erected in just 110 days, it quickly became the second largest city in Oregon. It was originally built to accommodate African-American workers during World War II, but it ended up being one of the only affordable options for many, and one of the few places that would rent to people who weren't white. Janice's family moved into one of these houses. I remember playing, yeah, and you know the thing about Vanport is that we were mixed, everybody got along. There was no name calling or nothing. Everyone just played and got along. You know, we all played together and invited each other in to, to come to our house. It wasn't fancy or anything because the housing is almost the same as barracks, but a little nicer. A few years into their life in Vanport, when Janice was seven years old, the city had a particularly wet spring. On May 30th, 1948, the water in the rivers had risen significantly. Residents were assured that they were safe and there was nothing to worry about. They announced the dike broke, we have to leave. When the flood came, our car was filled with three other families, my, our family, uh, Kasabuchi family, and the Ikata family, and they were all hanging you know, on you know, the, the rails, and we were all packed in like sardines. We didn't bring anything. We just got in the car and just you know, went up the hill on, on Denver Avenue. Denver Avenue was the only way out of Vanport. The family lost everything in the flood. They sought refuge in their temple until they moved into government housing called Columbia Villa. But after four years there, Columbia Villa was shut down and they found themselves displaced again. They were all traumas. But I think they, they just had to overcome it. And like Shitaka and I, you know, it can't be helped. I think that was, we're always saying, it can't be helped. You know, we just have to go on. And then that's what they even instilled in us, except they said, to, don't do anything to, to, to shame our family name and work hard and do good in school and, and, and make, make the family proud. Maybe you're not the smartest, but do the best and then, you know, you'll, you'll get somewhere. And just don't, we, we always, they said, just don't give up. It'll get better. And I think eventually it did get better for the parents. We ended up uh, finding a home in North Portland. We moved there in 52, and our house, <laughs> we, my mom, I, I can still remember it, 3040 North Hunt, and my mom says, we have to hunt for everything. We got the right, right street that we lived in. <laughs> Even though we lived in the house on North Hunt, every summer uh, we have Japanese farmers. And no, there's no more farmers now, but there was quite a few farmers. We all worked at different farms. If one farmer needed help, then we'd go to another farm. My mom and dad took us there and we lived in the cabins. Oh, every Friday, dad would pick us up and I only had one day, which was Saturday, to play with my friends and the next Sunday, the morning, or next Sunday afternoon, dad would take us back to Gresham. I remember dad playing, but there was no more sheet music or nothing because everything was gone from the flood. You know, it'd be wonderful to have, uh, he had a whole collection of records that we'd hear. I mean, if he didn't play, we'd hear these records over and over and over again. So we had music all the time going. My dad and I, uh, my sister and I, 
Uh, he would write these songs for us in English words so that we could sing uh, at our church when we had these performances. And he would play the piano, my brother would play the violin, we would sing these songs. But yeah, he taught us all these things, and uh, I think that he, he, that was his enjoyment, that was part of his life. I think that's what made him happy. I think if he didn't have that, I, I, I don't think he'd have been a happy person. Music is an universal language, and it, it brings people together, and uh, no matter where you're from. Eventually, my dad got a job working for Dennis Uniform Company as a, a truck driver, a, a delivery person, and then my mother ended up working there as a power sewer. They both worked there at Dennis Uniform Company until they both retired. When I got in junior high school, I, I ended up working for the library, the central library, uh, as a page. And I, I enjoyed that because I love books. And, you know, in those days, you, you stamp and you paste and everything. So I did that. I got to do that. And then I got a job there in the summertime and then go back to school. And, and uh, I worked there a little bit after uh, I graduated from high school. Janice got a business certificate and then started working as a bookkeeper. When she was 19, she met her husband at a festival at their temple, just like her parents met. Apparently, he saw me dancing. He came home from college or, or summer break or something, and he asked a friend, which I knew the friend, and says, you know, who's that gal? I'd like to meet her. And so we got introduced, and uh, he asked me for coffee. At that time, I didn't drink coffee, so I said, I refuse this coffee offer. <laughs> and then, then about a week later, he called Call, called me up and asked me if I wanted to go to a, a dinner and a, a movie. And I says, oh, okay. You know, and then, I, of course, I asked my mother, you know, did you know this family? He's, oh, yeah, they were in the same block as we were in camp. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, we, so both families knew each other, so they were real pleased that we were starting to date. And uh, it was in 59, 1959. And, and then we got married in 62. We, we rented a house first in Southeast Portland, and then we ended up buying it. And then, then we uh, bought a home in East Moreland in 69, 1969. And it's a home that my husband said that uh, him and his father used to do gardening. I mean, they did the lawn and all that. Janice's husband was an architect. Although Portland had rejected him as a little kid, he went on to make his permanent mark on the city with the buildings he designed. And he actually uh, designed the Buddhist church that was built in 64. Yeah, it's, it's, a small, it's just a simple church, but he uh, designed that. It's called Oregon Buddhist Temple. He worked for Skidmore Owens and Merrill Architects, and he worked there for 22 years before they closed the Portland office. So he did a lot of the downtown buildings. Oh, and... Uh, he did the uh, Japanese pavilion. In 1988, President Ronald Reagan signed an act that officially apologized to Japanese Americans for the racism and discrimination that took place during World War II. As a part of that apology, 
$20,000 was sent to each person still alive who had been incarcerated in an internment camp. One thing I have to say is that uh, oh, when my husband and I got our $20,000, $20, our first thing is I wished our parents were alive and our grandparents were alive because they're the ones that suffered and we didn't suffer like they did. And then I think they would have uh, would have uh, really been happy to get an apology from the president and the U.S. people, uh, Congress, because they suffered more than me and my brother. And I know, like I said, they lost everything. And uh, of course, they lost in Vanport too. But we built we were able to rebuild because like, they got a job and they, you know, started working. And, and the one thing uh, they all stressed was always education. We gotta work hard. They always said, you gotta work harder because, you know, we have to prove that we are to the American people that, you know, we can accomplish stuff for them and, and make it a better community. And I, I, I wish they would have, been alive to receive the money, you know, because I thought that was what would have made them feel happy. But I, maybe the main thing is just an apology, what happened to them because of the, the race and not because there was no, uh, they didn't do anything wrong. In 2019, Janice was asked by Chisauhata, an old friend of hers, to participate in a play called Gambate, Be Strong. It featured the bombing of Pearl Harbor and life in the Japanese internment camps. Janice is passionate about people learning more about those parts of history, so she happily agreed to be a part of the ensemble. Uh, Chisao Hata put together this play. Several of us in the community were in that play. It, uh, talked about uh, internment and leaving our business here in Japantown. Yeah, we, it was playing at the Firehouse Theater. There was five performances that we did. It was always a full house. I wanted the people to see what it was like that our parents went through and asked the people to see that uh, we went through this, but we came out okay. You know, we, we, we're still proud to be a Japanese American. And I mean, I never, never in my life did I say, I just want to be an American. I always said I'm a Japanese American. And I'm, I'm proud to be Japanese-American. And uh, even though we went through all the suffering in camp, and that we're still proud to be a Japanese-American, and uh, I want the story to be told so that it will not be forgotten. And so I want the future of the children, the grandchildren, and the great-grandchildren to know that, uh, that there's a legacy. We have this legacy of our life. Many Roads to Here is a production of The Immigrant Story. Many thanks to the Japanese American Museum of Oregon, who allowed us to record there. The original interview was conducted in December of 2021 by Stephanie Valance and Sankar Raman. 
This episode is part of the I Am an American series, generously funded by Anne Nato Campbell. For more episodes in this series, please visit our website. It was produced by Emily Kerr with audio editing by Greg Palmer. Our executive producer is the most convivial Sankar Raman. For more stories, visit theimmigrantstory.org backslash many roads. Listen live at prp.fm or stream us wherever you get your podcasts.